Well, I have to say, after the events of this week and even the events of the last few weeks, <laughs> my heart, my mind is full of things I would love to say uh, this morning. But we have God's Word before us, and we're going to stick to that. Nevertheless, um, Friday didn't really change what I was going to say this morning, uh, maybe amplified it a little bit or clarified it a little bit. Um, it fits so well, and uh, no matter what the outcome would have been, it would have fit anyway. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, the temptation of Jesus, the temptation of the Word made flesh. Another one of those familiar stories in Scripture with wonderful lessons for us. Let me read it for us as we prepare to come before God's Word this morning. Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word for us this morning. As we come before it, let's turn to the Lord once again in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before your word. As always, we ask your blessing upon this time. We ask you to speak to us. Open our eyes and ears that we may hear and see everything that you have for us this morning. Fulfill the promise that you, you made is that as your word goes out, it does not return to you void, but instead accomplishes all that you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. May it be successful as well in becoming a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, we ask all of this in the wonderful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, here we are in Luke chapter 4. Luke has spent three chapters, <coughs> excuse me, three chapters preparing us for Jesus' public ministry. He's shown us that it's important that when the word comes, how we respond, whether in belief or disbelief. 
we've seen that those prepared will see the glory of the word as it comes. That those who are prepared will live their lives according to the word. That they know the source of the word is God the Father. That they know the word will come as a man greater than John himself. Indeed, even greater than Moses, the great prophet, the incarnate word of God. We began by even preparing ourselves to understand that when the word comes, it comes with power. It comes to reveal things. And it comes to demand a response, to compel a response from us. If we back up a little bit into chapter 3, verse 23, Luke tells us that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. The events earlier in chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, took place in about 27, 28 AD. Luke's precision in those verses help us know that that's precisely when that happened. Now, skeptics, <clears throat> looking at Luke's description of the rulers in verses 1 and 2, chapter 3, point out Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, and say, aha, Luke can't be right. That's a good 50, 60 years before this time. Well, then modern scholarship and archaeology comes along and discovers there was a second one. And indeed, he served right at this time. Now, Jesus' birth is usually dated somewhere 3 to 5 B.C. If John's ministry began in 27 or 28, maybe lasted a few years, we don't know exactly when in in John's ministry Jesus was baptized, but we can see that here's Jesus in his 30s, 30 to 35 years old as he begins its ministry. Why do I spend time on that? It's just another reminder of how Luke grounds his story in true history. That when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about some mythical figure from the past. He lived. He lived at a specific time. And we can pinpoint that time fairly accurately. And in reality, there's better evidence in antiquity for Jesus than just about any of his contemporaries. So now Jesus, 30 to 35 years old, begins his ministry. Remember that he's known since he was 12 years old who he was. So it's 18, 23, 24, 25 years that he's had to wait to begin his ministry. That always strikes me, and I can't skip over that that time gap, because sometimes we have to wait as well. We hate waiting. I haven't used a Princess Bride illustration in a while. Inigo Montoya hates waiting, so he helps the man in black up the cliff. The cliff. But we're no different. We hate waiting. 18, 20, 25 years, Jesus knew who he was, what he was called to do, and had to wait. Wow. Who am I to complain about having to wait? It's a wonderful little reminder. So now Jesus, baptized by John, identifying with us as a human man, is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, tempted by Satan himself. The text breaks down into three parts that I want to look at in turn. Verses 1 and 2, kind of the setup in the wilderness. 
the temptation in verses 3 to 12, and then a brief little postlude or epilogue in verse 13. After that, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the implications of this passage for the church and for us as individuals as well. Well, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Again, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, it says, returned to the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. Led into the Spirit by, led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Mark, in his version of this story, makes it a little bit more uh, urgent. Chapter 1, verse 12 of Mark, he uses the word drive. The Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. What did we read back in Genesis 3? When Adam and Eve sinned, they were drove out of the garden. Jesus is being driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Forty days, did not eat, tempted by Satan. Hungry at the end of those 40 days. Now that's an understatement. 40 days without eating. He is starving. Now the setting is very, very important. Go back to Genesis 3. The fall of man, Adam and Eve's sin. Because now here we have the second Adam being driven out into the wilderness, being tempted by the same serpent, not in that beautiful garden, but now out in the barren wilderness. And the question before us is, will this Adam fall as well? Will he give in to temptation as well? Or will he obey God? And wonderfully, as the story unfolds, we see that he does not fall. He obeys. The crafty tricks of the tempter do not work on him, as we will see. So part of what is being set up here in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 4 is the reversal of the fall beginning to take place. From the wilderness into the promised land. From being driven out to obedience and holiness. Rejecting the temptations of the serpent. Preparing the way to re-enter the haven of God's rest for all of God's people. Powerful imagery of what's going on in verses 1 and 2. And there's another peril. Of course, the 40 days in the wilderness should remind us of who? Israel. 40 years in the wilderness. Israel led by God. Jesus led by the Holy Spirit. Israel was there because of rebellion for their refusal to fight for the promised land, fear of their enemies. And then in the wilderness, they complained against God, very bitter about their situation. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? God was kind to them and gave them manna and quail and water and provided for their needs. Their clothes did not wear out for 40 years. Here Jesus is led into the wilderness like the second Adam, doing what the first Adam could not and would not. He's led into the wilderness to do what God's people could not do. Trust in God 
depend on God alone for his sustenance without complaining, without bitterness, without rebellion. At the end of 40 years, Israel entered the land to take possession of it, but they did so incompletely. Not all the nations were driven out before them. They took possession of the territory, but they didn't expel all of their enemies from it. But Jesus, at the end of 40 days, is going to cross that same Jordan to take possession not of a piece of dirt in the Middle East, but to take possession of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Take possession, ultimately, of the whole earth itself. So these 40 days in the wilderness are not just some holy man's ascetic spiritual trip into the desert. Not his quiet time with God. They're an important test If successfully passed, it will inaugurate a new era for all of God's people, where the sins of the past, Adam's and Israel's, are reversed. A new Adam makes true righteousness possible, and a new Israel will be created, a worldwide people with the law written on their hearts, willingly obedient to God and Jesus Christ. So this is an incredibly important event in the life of Jesus and in John's or in Luke's narrative here for us. So then we get to the temptation itself, or the final temptation, if you will. He's been tempted for 40 days, incredibly hungry, at his weakest point physically. Now that temptation reaches its peak in verses 3 to 12. Three temptations. The first one in verses 3 to 5. And that temptation hits right where it hurts. Hunger. Command this stone to become bread. Now that's something that Jesus, being God, could have done. Easily. He's the creator. The creative word of God. But if you think about it, the temptation is really not about eating and about hunger. It's about trust in God and faithfulness to him. Jesus was sent into the wilderness to fast, to be hungry, to go without, to be tested and tempted. And to cave in at the end and turn stones to bread and eat it would be rebellion against the very purpose for for which he was sent into the wilderness in the first place. It would be the ultimate act of selfishness. I don't care about my mission. I'm hungry. I want to eat. And in reality, Satan's temptations are always about ourselves. Take care of yourself. Look out for number one. Jesus didn't come for himself. He came to serve God. He came to glorify his Father and to do his will. He came for you. He came for me. And so Jesus rejects this temptation with the word of God itself. Man shall not live by bread alone, from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And he's shown that man does not live by bread alone. He's been sustained by God in the wilderness for 40 days without food. Another thing to note here, and it will be a repeated pattern, is that Satan's temptations appeal to truth, whether it's in the garden in Genesis 3, or to us today, or to Jesus in the wilderness. 
Jesus is God. He can make bread out of stone. But Jesus instead reaffirmed his humanity. I'm a man. And God has promised that man need not live by bread alone. He turns Satan's temptation on its head. Rejects it. So that leads to the second temptation, verses 5 to 8. If appealing to a basic physical human need didn't work, now Satan's going to appeal to the very typical, very human desire for power. Ultimate power. But power with a catch. He has to worship. And in worshiping, submit to Satan. Satan says he was given the kingdoms of this world to give away. It's questionable whether that is really true. They're not really his to give away. God is the ultimate establisher and (laughs) uh, destroyer of kings. We saw that in Daniel's prophecy. At best, he's a kind of steward for God, a poor one at that. But Satan does have a certain amount of power in this world that God has given to him. And so Satan twists that truth again to suit his own purposes and his own arrogance. The temptation is real, though. All the kingdoms in the world shown to Jesus in a moment of time. You can have these kingdoms. Just worship me. Here's the temptation. God promised the Son, the kingdoms of this world. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The kings of the earth rise up, but God will crush them and the Son will rule. But he's got to follow God's plan for that. Satan is offering a quick solution. Worship me, it's yours and it's yours now. Tempting. Why go through all that work? Why live as a man? Why suffer, be tempted, die? Why go through all of that? The kingdoms of the world without the sacrifice, without having to wait. Of course, Jesus has already waited 18, 20 plus years. So Satan's actually kind of a fool. And of course, Jesus does not give in, but counters again with the very word of God from Deuteronomy 6.13 and 1 Samuel 7.3. Worship the Lord your God. Him only you shall serve. And he's determined to do the same. Second temptation fails. Satan moves to the third in verses 9 to 12. Takes Jesus, whether in a vision or physically, really, to the very pinnacle of the temple itself. It says, if you are the Son of God, second time he said this, in the first temptation and in the second, challenging his divinity. If you're really the Son of God, prove it by using your power to change stone to bread. Well, that failed. So now prove it by showing that God will fulfill his word to you. God's word has said about you that you will be guarded by his angels, and that their hands will lift you up, lest your foot would strike stone. God made you this promise, Jesus. Prove that it's true. But again, Satan is appealing to truth 
but twisting it. Jesus' answer is simple and shows how the word is being twisted because he's testing God. Jesus is very clear in his response in verse 12. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. There's kind of a dual meaning in Jesus' answer. Do not test the Father as to whether he will keep his promises or not. He will. God is a promise keeper, a covenant keeper. But also do not test the Son. Do not test my divinity and do not test my commitment to my Father. So the temptations fail. We get to the last verse, verse 13. Satan has been thwarted and it says that he departed from him. He departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And the question I have as I read that Did that opportune time ever come? I don't think it did. I don't think it ever came again. Some would point to the crucifixion, call it Satan's attempt to kill Jesus and and kill God's plan and thwart the, the son's attempt to become king. That doesn't work for me. It doesn't fit. Because, one, it's not in the text, so that's just reading things into it. But two, Jesus came for that purpose. He he knew he came for that purpose. To die. To bear the sins of his people. To bear the wrath of God on their behalf. To be in the grave for three days. To be resurrected. He came for that purpose. He was sent by the Father for that purpose. So I don't think that's the opportune time. I don't think the opportune time ever came again. But Satan does not give up. What does he do instead? He can't attack Jesus, so who does he attack? Us, the body of Christ. The temptation, the itching words that would scratch our ears, our itching ears, he turns to us. And this is where I want to look at some lessons. And there are so many lessons here, but in the context of some of the things we've seen recently, some lessons for the church and for us as individuals as well. The first is that when Satan comes to tempt us, how should we respond? Well, clearly, the same way that Jesus does, with the Word of God. It means we have to know the Word. It means we have to know how to apply the Word. Because Satan is very subtle. He is the most subtle beast. Crafty with his words. Twisting them to his own purposes. He'll take God's Word misinterpret it, and misapply it in the way that's most tempting to you and to me. That's scary. It means we have to know God's Word. It means, to be honest, it means not just me as a pastor needs to know it, but all of you need to know it. I can't be there every time you're tempted. You have to know it. You have to know how to respond. Resist Satan by knowing God's Word and knowing how to apply it. And sadly, I think today, this is precisely where the church, corporately, but also as individuals, has failed. At, At best, is very weak. 
I know you don't doubt this, but if anyone would, all you have to do is look at the response to the latest cultural challenge, the latest temptation from Satan himself. That's where we need to see it is coming from, the same-sex marriage movement. Because we see and saw everywhere the slogan, love wins. Where did they get that from? From a purported Christian pastor. I have his book in my study. Talk about twisting and distorting God's word. But it appeals to God's word in a very subtle and very powerful way. God's word says, love God, right? Love your neighbor. The two greatest commands. These trump everything else. The most important thing of everything is to love others. What does that mean, they say? Well, be nice to them. We've talked about this. Love has become being nice. Not disagreeing, not criticizing. Letting people do what they want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Don't limit their civil liberties, is the argument today. Because if their love is genuine for one another, faithful, committed, who are we to judge? Who are you to judge, church? And you may think, well, that's foolish reasoning. And you're right. But it is common. And the church is buying it. More and more Christian leaders, more and more Christians in all sorts of churches around this country are buying that reasoning. Why? Because they don't know the word and they don't know how to apply it. They don't know how to interpret it properly. We've given in to temptation. And I think the three temptations of Jesus are a model for how we are tempted and how we've given in in the world today. Jesus was tempted with hunger. We give in, the church has given in, in many sectors, to the temptation of hunger, which is really a hunger and thirst for things. I want stuff. I want health. I want wealth. I want happiness. I want joy. I want peace. And what do the prosperity teachers give them? They give them that in abundance. You can have all that if you just do X, Y, Z. We've given in to the temptation for hunger, for our own selfish, greedy wants and desires. What about the temptation to power? Look at how many churches strive so hard for numbers, people, budgets, to be influential in their neighborhood, their, cult, their, their society, their, their city, their town. How many churches try to influence the world around them? Or the power that's craved in, in, in these wild manifestations of so-called spiritual gifts. I have power over health. I have power over disease. I have power over sickness. I have so much power I can raise people from the dead. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from friends and family, you know, so-and-so raised someone from the dead. This is prevalent today. You may not be exposed to it. It is out there in abundance. And it's not just the charismatic stuff. It's the, the lust, the thirst for power. And these people are continually brought low. I have not been in one church where that body 
try to be somebody or be influential or be recognized or have power or influence over others, and that church did not come crashing down. Not one. They don't have to be big churches either. They could be small churches. That desire to have influence and power and, and control over others, whether, whether the, the dictator pastor, we've seen them fall recently, right, within the last six months, or the church that says we're going to control the political process, we're going to control the social process, we're going to do this, that, or the other thing, come crashing down. The third temptation is really a temptation about safety. If you throw yourself, Jesus, off the high point of the tower, God will keep you safe. He promised to. That's a very subtle temptation. We give in to those we think or hope will keep us safe. The word says to not put our trust in princes, and yet that's exactly what we do. I think probably of all the temptations we in the Reformed community are most, most likely to fall victim to this temptation. We trust in the Constitution. We trust in the laws of our land. We trust in so-called Christian politicians elected to office to protect us and to do the right thing, to make the right laws the right way. We trust in judges and justices to make the right decisions. And year after year after year after year, decade after decade now, we have lost. They haven't protected us. Friday is a perfect example of that. There is no safety in any of these things. And I think our, our, the church collectively, the church is giving in to these very simple temptations, but very subtle as well, or embarrassing failures, because we should know better. We have God's word. We have our own Savior's example to us. We should know better. Shame on us. We read about Jesus' temptation by Satan, and we cheer his use of the word to beat back Satan. And what do we do when Satan comes at us? Oh, that sounds good. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. And we're all guilty of it, every single one of us, in some way, shape, or form. So what do we do? <laughs> Again, we've got to get back to the word. We have to get back to the word and to studying it and to knowing it to knowing how to apply it in our lives. I've worked with evangelical folks now for 12 and a half years, and I, I'm saddened by what I see and hear by my coworkers. They do not know God's word. Breaks my heart. And I really think we need to get people out of the places they're in where they're not being taught and into places where they will be. That's not sheep stealing, that's sheep rescuing. Well, they'll be taught and discipled properly. But even more than that, or, 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 or based upon that and flowing out of that, is in, in many ways I think the church has lost our primary devotion to the gospel itself. 
look, we've lost the culture wars. We've lost. Birth control back in the 60s. Free sex. No-fault divorce. Abortion on demand. Yeah, they're down, but they're still over a million a year. That's heartbreaking. Premarital sex. Do you know that in, in a typical evangelical church today, especially the ones that appeal to young people, premarital sex is rampant. We're not married yet. It's not adultery. And now, homosexual behavior and even same-sex marriage embraced in many parts of the church. We've lost the culture wars, and we're not going to win it by electing the right people or appointing the right judges, or even, as I've heard in the last few days, having constitutional amendments. It's not going to work. The cure for people's hearts and minds is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only cure. It's always been the only cure. If the events of the recent days and weeks trouble you, and I think they should, I think the answer is to get passionate about the gospel, to share it with others, to invite people to churches and Bible studies, give them pamphlets or books, send them to websites that have good information, forward emails, do whatever you can to share the good news with them. Point them to Jesus Christ, who went into the wilderness suffered temptation and faced it, conquered it on our behalf. Point them to God and His Son, sent to live and die and rise again to save men and women and children from their sin, to change their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, to renew their minds by the Word of God. There's power in the Word. There's power in the Gospel. And pray. Get on our knees and pray for revival. Real revival. That the Holy Spirit would sweep across this land and across this world with incredible power to convict people of sin and to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. It can be done. It's been done in the past. That's our weapon. That's our hope. Not princes, not principalities, not powers, not judges, not politicians, not movements, not money, not numbers. <laughs> we have the Holy Spirit. That's power. We have the good news of the gospel. That changes lives. In the meantime, we do have to be prepared. The world is turned against us. The surrounding culture in Christian America is turned against us. Be prepared for temptation. Be prepared for trials. But do not give in to those temptations. Rejoice in the trials and depend upon the Word of God. As Jesus has shown us, facing this, the tempter himself, the answers are in the Word. They're there. They're there for us, and they're there for the world around us. The world is looking for answers. They're looking for solutions. They're looking for understanding of life. And they're, they're, they're looking for their solutions in all the wrong places. And we see it in their behaviors, the things that they chase after, the things that they do, money, 
recognition, fame, surgery to make oneself look young or look a different sex. They're looking for, they're looking for meaning and satisfaction and hope and joy in life and they're chasing after all these things. And unfortunately, we, the church, have said, oh, that's interesting. Let me read about, um, what's her name now? His name? Caitlin? Bruce Jenner? Oh, that's a fun story. I, you know, he's got a reality show coming. I, I think I might watch that. Why? You want to be loved? You want to find meaning in life? It's right here. And the Savior who came to die for his people, to serve his people. He's the only hope for a world lost in darkness, and unfortunately, right now, loving it. But the world is hungry. It is hungry. Feed them with what matters, with what really sustains the Word of God. Feed them with Jesus, the Word made flesh. Their desires will be satisfied. And ours will as well. Praise God for that. On that note, let's pray. Dear God and Father, we do ask for strength in in these trying times, for wisdom to know how to interact and, and, and react to them wisdom to know how to be salt and light, wisdom to know how to stand on Christ and on your word, for wisdom to fruitfully interact with those around us in a way that draws them to you and does not drive them away. We are wholly inadequate to the task on our own, and so we ask once again that you would pour out your spirit, pour out your spirit first upon us, Enliven us, quicken us, enable us, empower us to do what you've called us to do. We each have different gifts. We have, each have different roles to play in the great task that you have laid before us to make disciples of all nations. But we are eager to see that happen. We mourn what has happened in the past. We look forward to what you will do in the future. We know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. We know that the gospel will go out so that some from every tongue and tribe and nation will come to faith in Jesus. We know there is victory. We know there is victory in Jesus. We know there is victory coming. Help us to be productive workers and soldiers in that fight. May that victory come quickly. For we do despair at the fist that has been raised against you by those around us. It grieves our hearts. Come quickly. Defeat your enemies. Save your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.